we have a fight on our hands tonight. We have a fight in that I'm really struggling with hay fever. So um, there's a physical battle. We have a mental battle because it's a really difficult passage. You notice that as it's read? What the heck is going on here? You'll be helped to take notes, I'm sure, and to follow along on your, on your handout. And we have a spiritual battle because uh, Satan would love us to fall asleep in the warm weather. He would love us not to pay attention. Um, and he would love us to do absolutely nothing with what we hear tonight. And so we must defy him and fight as we've just sung. So when we're ready with that passage open, why don't we, uh, when we pray together? The flames shall not hurt thee. I only design your dross to consume, your gold to refine. Father, please consume our dross tonight. Where we have dross, where we have drossy thinking, drossy hearts, drossy behavior, please burn that away. Purify us to make us more and more like your son. Lord, we know that might be painful, but we know it is for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Sorry. If you um, want to be a good pickpocket, you're going to have to learn how to misdirect people. I don't know if you've ever aspired to be a pickpocket. Probably not. Um, I was once uh, leaving a, a market in Senegal with some friends, and uh, we're walking out of this market. And uh, a little chap, he wasn't a dwarf, um, but he was very short. He, he sort of start, started dancing up to my mate like this. And started then dancing around my friend saying, Nasus, Nasus, Nasus. And I thought it was hilarious. Because my friend was a sort of stiff upper lip British folk. And he, uh, British folk, he didn't know what to do. And this guy was going, Nasus, Nasus, dancing around him in a circle. And we were just wetting ourselves laughing. He wasn't wearing nice shoes. They were knackered trainers, and that made it all the funnier. But anyway, eventually he gave up, and we, we plodded on. And then he went, wallet. And we had to run after the little chap who made off with his wallet. See, he had lulled us in by his little song and dance. He, he, he misdirected us, making us look over here. When over here, he had his hand in my friend's pocket. It's the art of misdirection. And uh, we see the same sort of trick being used in other walks of life, such as uh, some of the, the big elections we've seen over, over previous years. So the candidates, they don't want us, do they? They don't want us to look too closely at their glaring character flaws. They don't want us to scrutinise their poorly thought through manifestos and policies and all that sort of thing. So what do they do? Well, they distract us with sensationalist fear-mongering and sugar-coated policies and all that sort of stuff. And all too often we end up pickpocketed by it all. And sadly, it's all too common in churches to be fooled in this sort of way, to, to follow leaders who on the outside look brilliant, so wise, so impressive, so gifted. But all this might distract from the fact they're not doing what God wants them to do, and the church gets pickpocketed. If you've been with us in Luke over the past couple of weeks, we've seen Jesus being confronted again and again and again by the religious establishment of Jerusalem. You've got the Pharisees, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and their spies we met last week. On the outside, you look at them, they look so learned. They look so legitimate. But we know on the inside, they're trying to kill Jesus. So in our passage today, if you like, Jesus takes out a big, whacking great sign hammers it into the dirt, and the sign simply reads, warning, pickpockets operate in this area. So the reason I want you to stay tuned for the next few moments together is that we need to be able to discern 
what sound ministry looks like. I think it's be useful for us as a church as we you know, continue to shape what we want St. John's to be like going forward. But I think it's be especially useful for us, perhaps when we're thinking about what church we might go to next. I, I appreciate we're quite a transient area. People often with us for two or three years and they go on. And often I'm heartbroken when people leave St. John's and they choose the most dreadful churches to go to. I'm thinking, golly, we're just not teaching people discernment. It's so easy to be fooled and misdirected by outward appearances, by a flashy website, by great music, by dazzling communication. Friends, we need to learn discernment. Otherwise, we'll end up being pickpocketed. So you'll see on our handout, here's, here's my first point. Sound ministry prepares us for the next stage and not just the now. Look down at verse 27, please, in your Bibles. Verse 27, it's right there in front of you. Some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. I love this. You can kind of imagine all the religious leaders queuing up to have a go at Jesus. And next in the line, if you like, are the Sadducees. Now these guys, you might not know, are a super conservative, aristocratic sect. They, they, they only believed, they only followed the first five books of the Bible, right? That, that bit there, called the Pentateuch. So what they did, that because of that, they, they kind of dismissed the whole thing about the afterlife as, as a bit of an unbiblical tradition. It's a dodgy myth inserted by those later guys and, and held up by the teachers of the law. Today, I think, we'd call the, the Sadducees rationalists because they only believe what they can see with their eyes. So what do they do? They come up to Jesus with this rather sneering, mocking question. They, they want to show Jesus just how ridiculous it is to believe in the resurrection of, from the dead. So look at verse 28. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow, raise up offspring for his brother. Now then, there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second, and then the third, married her. And in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife would she be, since the seven were married to her? <laughs> I, I reckon that's what they said at the end there. Now the question is sort of based upon this, this practice of what's called Leverite marriage. And that was in, in, in the law. And it was a really good law. It was there to make sure that if a man dies, his widow wouldn't just be kicked to the curb, completely left to fight on her own. No, uh, her, the, the dead man's brother would take her in, marry her, and look after her and protect her. And any children which would come from that marriage would then perpetuate the dead man's name and would get that man's inheritance. It was a good law. But the Sadducees' point here is to show that if there's an afterlife, <laughs> then seven men would end up arguing over her on the day of judgment. And poor God has to sort of scratch his head and work out which man gets the wife. It'd be a disaster. And so their point is, from Moses' law, it shows that the resurrection doctrine is just nonsense. It's unbiblical nonsense. So is this one nil to the Pharisees? Thank you very much. And off they go. Well, look at verse 34. Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage, 
But those who are considered worthy to take part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. So the Sanchees, they, they make two fatal errors in their question. The first assumption they make, Jesus makes clear that not, not everyone is going to take part in the future resurrection life. That, that kind of hinges on how they respond to Jesus, which doesn't seem to be positive, does it? The other assumption they make is Jesus is very clear there is no marriage in the new creation. I don't know how that, how that sits with you. It might be a strange thought. I, I, I can't think of not being married to Hannah in the new creation. Hannah probably can think of that and probably might be looking forward to it. <laughs> but it, it seems so strange to me. And maybe if you're married here, you, maybe you're thinking that too. But, it, but I guess there wouldn't, be, there wouldn't be any need for us to be married in the new creation, would there? In this passage, at least, that the, the big practical purpose of marriage is to perpetuate life, to ensure the continuance of my name and my inheritance once I die. And that's why the Bible encourages us, if we're able, to have lots and lots of children. But in heaven, we can no longer die and so there's no need to keep on making life. So the only inheritance that matters is if we are children of God, children of the resurrection. So that means whether you're here tonight and you're married or, or you're single, whether you're happily married or unhappily married, whether you're unhappily single or happily single, whoever we are, you can say this for certain. In the next life, you're going to miss out on nothing. Because we'll have the greater reality. The reality to which marriage is always intended to point. So having exposed all their assumptions, Jesus now turns to actually answer their question. And he answers it, notice, from the Pentateuch. Look at verse 37. But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise. For he calls the Lord the God of Abraham the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. For to him all are alive. Do you see that by denying the resurrection, the Sadducees' ministry was inevitably focused on the here and now. So whether people would have children to perpetuate their family name or not. That was their obsession. But Jesus' ministry is far more concerned on the future age, where the people would be included into God's resurrection family and be with the likes of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, people who died but are still living with God now. Here's the question for us as individuals and as a church. Are we primarily concerned with preparing people for the next stage or just the now? Now, don't get me wrong, I sincerely hope that in years to come, as we grow the staff team, as we grow in resources and grow in number, that we might be able to do more to serve our local community. I want us to be doing things like marriage classes, parenting classes, lunches for the elderly. I want us to do all that stuff. But if the focus of a ministry is simply to offer people a better marriage, or more obedient kids, or a loving community, or a sense of purpose and belonging, 
Well, those are all good things. But they're not the gospel. None of those things can save people for eternal life. If that's our focus as a church, we're simply pickpocketing our community. Sound ministry prepares for the next stage, not just the now. Here's our next point. Sound ministry honours our Lord, not ourselves. I love verse 39. absolutely love it. Immediately after Jesus basically destroys the, Pharisee, uh, the Sadducees, um, the teachers of the law, they love it. And they go, well said, teacher, uh, which is kind of the ancient equivalent of, of saying, who are you? Who are you? To the Sadducees. Basically, they've just completely lost. And uh, it's funny because the, the teachers of the law, they, they think they're the pillars of orthodoxy because they, they believe in eternal life. They believe in the resurrection. And they love it that Jesus just slammed the Sadducees. They think they're so sound. So Jesus now turns to them and goes, no. No, you have a glaring error of a different sort. Look at verse 41. Then Jesus said to them, how is it said that they, that they say the Christ is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, the Lord, that's God, said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? If you were here at six o'clock, you would have met my uh, son Caleb. Most of you have met him, I think. He's four months old now, so he's, got, he's, he's, he's sentient now, so I feel like I'm bonding with him. Previously, it was just a, you know, he wasn't doing anything. Now, I feel like you know, he's doing stuff, which is, which is good. And I love, I love Caleb very much, but, but I, I don't think I've ever considered calling him my Lord. That would be weird, right? I know some of you come from cultures where, where um, kids are raised to call their dad, sir. Anyone, anyone have come from that background? Yes, sir. And they also do something. But how weird would it be for the dad to call the kids, sir? That's not the way it goes, is it? And that's the kind of the point in Jesus' question here to the teachers of the law. If they're so theologically sound, why haven't they understood Psalm 110? As we heard earlier from Callum, David's writing about a human descendant who would one day sit on the throne. So why does he call him his Lord? And the answer is obviously it's glaring and obvious, isn't it? Jesus is the fully human, fully divine king. He's the one before whom we'll all one day bow, including his great ancestor David. Now these teachers of the law, they're, they're, they're full of their sound theology, but they just don't see it. I don't see who Jesus is. The story is told of when the queen got a bit bored, got a bit bored one day knocking around Sandringham Palace. So she thought she'd pop out with one of her secret service agents. You know, she, she, you know how she does this. She, she puts a scarf around her face and then she goes out for a drive with her Land Rover. And she thought it'd be fun to go pop into Sandringham. And she, she, she um, went into one of these little local bric-a-brac shops. You know the ones they sort of sell royal memorabilia and all that guff anyway she was um she was walking up and down the aisle of this little sort of bric-a-brac shop perusing the goods and, and the lady behind the counter was there polishing a, a plate which had the queen's face on it she was like sort of puffing away and then she looked up and goes my goodness you look extraordinarily like the queen to which apparently the queen replied how reassuring <laughs> Well, in the same way, these, these teachers of the law, they were experts in royal memorabilia. 
the Bible. They knew it back to front. And yet they were clueless as they stood before their king. They won't give him the honour that is due because they want the honour for themselves. Look at verse 45. While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honour at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. This is a... This is a challenging message for anyone who teaches or preaches the Bible. I do sometimes wonder at the end of a talk, have people gone away thinking more of Christ or more of me? Or have they gone away remembering how great Christ is or remembering that funny story about the Queen? Because if my my first priority is to honour myself, then like these teachers of the law who devour widows' houses... It's inevitable I'm going to push others down in order to bring myself up. I think the most obvious example of this today is in the prosperity gospel preaching. You you must have seen this. As a general rule, never trust a pastor who drives a sports car, right? Let alone has a private jet or anything like that. These guys are wolves, and they feed on the weakest and most vulnerable and the poorest in the churches. It had nothing to do with that, friends. But we do say, see the same sort of attitude even in our sort of conservative evangelical circles. About 10 years ago, as I was setting out in ministry, I, um, I, was, I was looking for what, what's the most strategic ministry I could be involved in. And I remember a church planter from Newcastle came to visit our church and gave us a, a, a training session. It was about 20 of us, young lads, setting out in ministry. And he told us a story, a story about two identical churches which were looking for a new minister. And they're the same size. They had the same evangelical beliefs. They had the same missional outlook, identical. Apart from one of them was in leafy Sevenoaks in Kent. Great schools in that area, very wealthy. The other was in Hull, a fishing town in the northeast. Hundreds of evangelical ministers felt the Lord calling them to Seven Oaks. And two people felt the Lord calling them to Hull. He then asked us, sending out in ministry, young lads, are you willing to be a nobody in order that Christ might be a somebody? Or are you just hankering after the strategic ministries? Mike Ovey was a friend of mine who was a, a principal at Oak Hill Theological College where I studied, and you might know he died um, suddenly, very suddenly, earlier this year in his mid-50s. Now, despite spending his entire life in academia, he only ever published, I think, one or maybe two books. Now, you think that's a bit of a fail, isn't it? That's like the whole point of academia, surely. And it wasn't the fact that he wasn't very good. Quite the opposite. He made the decision... Actually, I'm going to focus on on training and and, and raising up the next generation of gospel workers and focus on them instead of publishing. 
He could have been known today around the world as, as, as in the likes of John Stott or Jim Packer or some of these great theological minds. But someone said at his funeral, his students were his books. He invested in people rather than in publications. It got me thinking, I mean, just think about the ways in which you serve the church. Would you serve in that way if nobody knew you were doing it and you didn't get any glory, any honour? Would you still do that? There's a question for any of us if we, think, if we teach the Bible in any way, or particularly if we're thinking about ministry. It's a challenge for myself. You know what I'm really grateful for? The people who stay around after the service and pack up and do the washing up downstairs. There's usually seven people on the rotor. Inevitably, two people come, and it's an unloved, unthanked, unglorious task. No one sees, and that's wonderful. So thank you for that. So I'm going to say thank you for that. Sound ministry honors our Lord, not ourselves. So I think we should listen to Jesus in verse 46. Beware. Beware, because pickpockets operate in this area. Look out for this. Here's a final point. Sound ministry encourages recklessness, not reserve. Look at verse 1. As he looked up, Jesus saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly, I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. As our passage was read earlier on by, by Amy, I wonder, man, I wonder if you thought, mm, this is a bit of a random selection. It's these, these passages, they seem a bit disparate, don't they? They don't seem to hang together so naturally, just a few random encounters. But Luke has very carefully put these passages together for us because there's one consistent character running through them. Did you spot who it was? It's not Jesus. It's the weak and financially impoverished widow. See, the Sadducees, they use the widow as a philosophical football to make their point. The teachers of the law used the widow to propel themselves forward, upwards in society, devouring her house. Jesus holds up the widow as the gold standard of godly living. Now that might surprise us because I think on one level her contribution is pathetic, isn't it? Her two, small, her two small copper coins apparently in today's money would amount to about a quid, one pound. It's not going to go far. Just think how far one pound will go to support St. John's. It's not going to go far, especially without gift aid. But on another level, her contribution is extraordinary. Some people, like the rich in this passage, they, they can tithe, they can give 10% and not even feel it going out of their bank account. She doesn't put in 10%, she puts in 100%. Literally, verse 4, she put in all of her life. Now, I wonder what you make of that. Here was a woman without employment, without savings, possibly without any children to look after her, and she's giving away her only means 
of support. We're thinking, surely this is unwise. Surely this is reckless. This is irresponsible. What about her savings? What about the future? What about society, which then has to step in to look after her? Friends, if we're itching to hear Jesus caveat this, I suggest we need to hear this teaching the most. Maybe our hearts aren't quite where Jesus is. We are privileged to have a number of people like this widow in our church. They might not have much time, but they give it. They might not much have much disposable income, but they offer it. They might not have many gifts, but they use them. And once or twice, I've, I've had to say to people here at church, please stop. Um, you're doing too much. Uh, you're giving too much. I fear you're going to burn out. Stop. Do less. I've had to say that. But for many of us here, our problem is not that we're giving too recklessly. Our problem is that our giving is far too reserved. I just want to give us two positive examples of ways in which we could change our thinking on this. And in northeastern India, there's a very poor region called the state of Mizoram. And the Mizoram people, the Christians there, they have a beautiful phrase to express how they give to God. They call it buftam time, which means one handful of rice at a time. Here's how it works. Families, poor families, they, each meal they would set aside one portion of rice set aside for God. And then they would collect up that rice and then give it to their church. And the church would then sell that rice in order to generate income. They began this all the way back in 1914 when the gospel hit that village. They thought, this is the way we do it. And back in 1914, they raised $1.50. Today, they, they, reach, uh, they raise each year $1.5 million dollars. All of which then goes into supporting local ministry, local mission work, and all that sort of thing. It's a poor area. The church leader explained that, of course, there are many different ways to serve the Lord. He said this, some people are great preachers. Some people contribute great amounts of money. But when we talk about this handful of rice, it's not impressive. The service is done in the corner of the kitchen where nobody even sees. But God sees. And God blesses. As long as we have something to eat every day, we have something to give to God every day. I find that quite, quite moving. Maybe you're thinking, yeah, but that's India, miles away. It, perhaps slightly closer to home, a different example. Let me tell you the story of a guy called Robert Gilmore Letourneau. He died in, in the 1970s. He was a, a Christian industrialist who dedicated his entire life to being a businessman for God. He was hugely successful. I think he designed drills and, and things to sort of dig up earth. And he, he, he made hundreds and hundreds of patents and made loads and loads of money. And as he succeeded financially, his income increased and increased and increased. Do you know what he kept on doing? He kept on increasing his giving to the point where he was giving 90% of all he had, or all his income away. And you might think, well... I'd do that if I was a multimillionaire. <laughs> That's easy, right? Maybe so, but Letourneau didn't start out wealthy. He made that decision to incrementally increase his giving back when he was 30 years old. 
That's about the age many of, us, many of us are here. And he made that decision when he was in debt and when he was out of a job. He said this, The question is not how much of my money I give to God, but rather how much of God's money I keep for myself. I don't know how you feel about those two stories. Sometimes people find, oh, that's great, or inspiring. Most of us probably feeling, oh, I feel really guilty. <laughs> what am I doing with my money? I feel, oh, I feel awful. So what, what is it which will change our hearts? To actually go away and desire to give radically like the Mazoran people, like Robert Gilmore, the turnout, like, like this widow. What will make us want to do that? Well, I think, look at your handout. I think the widow has learned what the Sadducees and the teachers of the Lord didn't. See, unlike the Sadducees, this widow's security was not in this life, but the life to come. Uh, unlike the teachers of the law, she cared nothing for her own honour, but only the honour of God. She le- she's learnt the lessons which the religious establishment haven't. See, friends, there are many churches up and down the land which you could easily get involved in. Churches which will expect nothing of you whatsoever. Nothing of your, you as church members. That they'll be happy for you to just sit here on a Sunday, float along, not give, not serve. It'll be easy. But friends, if that's, if that's what we're doing here at St. John's, we are pickpocketing you. Because we're robbing you of Christ-likeness of character. We're not, we're not saying, be like Jesus. We're not encouraging you to do that. I don't want us to be motivated tonight out of guilt. I want us to be motivated by grace. So as we close, just look again at what that widow did. Verse 4. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in all of her life. You can't help but read that and think, Hey, that's a lot like Jesus. Jesus who had everything. And yet he didn't come and just give us 10%. He came and he gave us everything. He gave us all of his life. He didn't give reservedly. He gave recklessly to the point of death on a cross. And he did that because he knew that he would be resurrected. He did that because he wanted to give honour to his father and not himself. And he did that for you. He did that for me. Even though by nature we're so miserly and so concerned with creating a security in this life and for ourselves. What a saviour we have. What a generous God we have. So what sort of church should St. John's be? And what sort of church should you go to when you happen to move on from us and move elsewhere? Well, I really hope it's a church that prepares you for the next stage and not just the now. I really pray it's a church which honours our Lord and, and not us. And I really pray it's one which encourages recklessness, not reserve. Let's pray. <laughs> Father God, thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ. 
thank you that though he had everything, he gave it all up till he had nothing. And in so doing, now we in him have everything. Lord, out of heart, wealth, whether that's spiritual wealth, material wealth, time, gifts. Lord, give us generous hearts. Lord, if there are some here who are giving too much, give them the wisdom to hold back. But Lord, I pray that for the majority of us here, we would be compelled to give more and give like this widow. In whose name we pray. Amen.